Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. We're a tiny minority, and many of us live for long periods of time, certainly have in the past, in hiding and closeted because there were criminal laws and there was a lot of violence and employment discrimination, housing discrimination, and so forth. It's very difficult for people to come out and have a strong political movement if we're criminals and if we're subjected to such social stigma and exclusion and even violence. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. This is the 16th part of our in-depth conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer, a civil rights attorney at Lambda Legal, about how claims of religious liberty are being weaponized to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. If you've missed any of the series, you can listen on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Outcaster Isha now continues her conversation with Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for joining us again on Outcasting. Very glad to do it. In October 2020, there was another potentially ominous sign about LGBTQ equality from the Supreme Court. Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito issued a statement last fall regarding marriage equality. We talked about it on Outcasting Overtime, and listeners can hear it on our website and read our comments on what they actually wrote. Tell us about what they said. So this was an unusual statement, and it was issued in a case that was brought to the Supreme Court by Kim Davis. Some people may remember Kim Davis was the the county clerk in charge of the office that issued marriage licenses in Rowan County, Kentucky. And because of her religious and personal beliefs, she objected to issuance of marriage licenses to same-sex couples after the courts had said that this is what the Constitution requires. But she objected, and she ordered those in her office also to not issue those licenses. And she expressed an objection that as the county clerk, her name and the county seal and so forth, but her name uh, were on the marriage licenses. And so she said she understood that to be her endorsement of the couples getting married, and she had a religious objection to doing that. So it was it was a bit far-fetched as a legal argument. She made the argument in court, and the court said, actually, no, you're a public servant, and this is your job, and you can't discriminate, so the office needs to function and issue licenses. But she carried her appeal up through the courts and kept losing and asked the Supreme Court to take her case And the Supreme Court said no. But these two justices issued this statement saying that while this particular case was not one that the Supreme Court should take up, they disagree with the Obergefell decision. They disagree with marriage equality. And they basically invited cases that would allow the court to revisit the question of whether the Constitution guarantees an equal freedom to marry for same-sex couples. What was unusual about it, there were a couple things that were unusual about it. One was to say explicitly in that way that they disagreed with a fairly recent precedent of the Supreme Court, and they disagree on religious grounds, and they say that they see that decision as having caused lots of social troubles, and in particular troubles for people who disagree on religious grounds. So that statement is taken as an invitation for more litigation and to 
bring a case to the Supreme Court in which they could reconsider the Obergefell decision. Neither of these justices has been supportive of LGBTQ equality over the years. What kind of things have they written before? Well, they both have been very critical, very emphatic in dissenting opinions from cases in which rights for LGBT people have been vindicated. They both wrote opinions in the case about wedding cakes. They wrote about why the baker who objected on religious grounds should be able to turn away same-sex couples and not provide wedding cakes. They agreed with dissenting opinions in Obergefell. Justice Alito did something in June of 2020 that was rather striking. The Bostock case was about employment discrimination. It was actually three different cases put together. So it was not a constitutional case. Uh, it was a case about whether the federal employment non-discrimination law, which we call Title VII, prohibits sex discrimination in employment. And three different cases came to the Supreme Court, two of them on behalf of gay men who had been discriminated against in employment, and one on behalf of uh, a transgender woman. And the legal issue was whether that sex discrimination protection applies to discrimination against gay or lesbian people or bisexual people or transgender people, whether we should understand that type of discrimination as discrimination because of sex, because of how a person is seen if they're in the re a relationship with a same-sex partner, or if they are expressing their gender in a range of ways that is inconsistent with what the boss thinks is appropriate. The Supreme Court issued a decision written by Justice Gorsuch, who was one of President Trump's appointees, so some people were surprised about this, saying that yes, indeed, Title VII sex discrimination protection does apply in those cases. It does apply to discrimination based on a person's sexual orientation or their transgender status, because there's no way to understand that discrimination as not being related to a person's sex. Well, Justice Alito disagreed, and he disagreed at enormous length, and he seems to have gone through the entire federal codes. He compiled all of these examples, basically saying, you know, this is, this is a crazy way to understand the statute, and the members of Congress would never have thought that this was covered, and look at all of these places where federal law treats people differently based on sex, and it can't possibly mean what the majority opinion is saying. What's important, I think, about how both of these justices have written on these questions is not just the conclusion that they come to, but the vehemence with which they disagree, the vehemence with which they assert the rights of religious people to look at things a particular way, and the tone with which they dismiss the rights or needs of LGBT people. Both of them have extremely conservative legal views, but they also express those views with a type of emphasis or, or really passion, and sometimes it even seems like anger. And they both have described these issues or discussed these issues in ways that really take it beyond just an academic argument. There's a type of vehemence to it that, well, that can be alarming really, uh, if we're talking about a community of people that has not had equal rights and freedom in our country, that the objection and the pushback to equality for our community is um, 
You know, it's disturbing. It does not seem dispassionate. It does not sometimes seem like what we might want from judicial temperament. So we saw that in the statement issued in um, Kim Davis's case. And of course, it gives us concern because it appears to be an invitation to object to the Obergefell decision and to bring cases to the court. There's a parallel to what we've seen in the abortion area of a political movement, a social movement, challenging access to abortion care and overt efforts, sometimes in state legislatures, sometimes through litigation, to bring these questions back to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court just recently has now taken a case that would give the court an opportunity, if it wants to take it, to either further diminish the protections that the court has protected now for decades, uh, access to abortion care, or to overturn Roe versus Wade. We don't know whether this statement in Kim Davis's case will operate in a similar way, but it's certainly something that gives us a lot of concern. It, it seems designed to function that way, and uh, what remains to be seen is whether it will be taken that way and whether there's a majority of the court that is open to the idea of re- revisiting the marriage equality question. The Thomas Alito dissent in the Davis case suggests that marriage equality should have been decided through the democratic process. Do you agree with that? Absolutely not. <laughs> the The whole point of having a Bill of Rights, these core constitutional protections, is that these fundamental rights are to be protected against majoritarian rule. The tyranny of the majority is a phrase that often is used. The democratic process is supposed to work and can sometimes work well when people are all on a level playing field. But if you have a minority group with less political power, then it stands to have its rights taken away quite systematically by a dominant majority. So the constitutional rights are there and the courts are supposed to enforce those rights to protect individuals from an overreaching government and minority groups from an overreaching majority. And when judges or elected officials or anyone says, oh, that minority group should take their claim to the legislature, whether it's marriage or whether it's opportunities for any minority group, oh, they should take it to the legislature. Sometimes we can understand that as people with power saying, (laughs) take your claim over there to that body that's not going to listen to you because you're part of a minority group and you don't have the votes. And so basically it's a possibly a softer way of saying, no, we're not going to enforce your rights because those are novel claims or we think the founders wouldn't have understood it. And our position would be, our view would be, that's your job. You're the courts. You're the place of last resort to enforce the same rights for everybody equally. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're not following the Constitution. You're not doing the job that the founders vested you to perform. So, yeah, we disagree with that position. (laughs) This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Isha is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal. 
country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. So when is it better for advancements in equality to come through the judicial branch as opposed to the legislative branch? New York State, for example, established marriage equality through the legislative process. Well, sometimes it's difficult for a minority group to secure equal rights and freedom through the legislative branch when the movement and their voices are just emerging. And over time, when there's been enough public education and organizing, then there can be success through the legislative branch because society has come to understand what the issue is. There's not one answer to this question. And in fact, there's not one answer among judges who might agree with the ultimate result. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was known to have said, in fact, she said it regularly, that she thought that Roe versus Wade decided too much too soon, took the issue of abortion rights and more generally the issue of women's equality to control our own bodies and lives and to make our own moral judgments about whether to continue a pregnancy or not or other types of very important moral decisions, took that question out of the political process too early and that the women's rights movement that was growing and strengthening and had lots of persuasive power then lost some of the steam because the courts were deciding that question or decided the question so effectively in that one case. And the judge that I clerked for tended to agree with that view. Now, I tended to disagree because in my view, the Supreme Court secured an important autonomy right for women that meant that Many young women and women of my generation, who are not so young anymore, had freedom to control our lives that might not have been true if more time had been spent in the political process. And there would have been women who lost their lives through botched, unsafe, illegal abortions. There's no way to run that tape twice, you know? Uh, it happened a particular way, so we don't know what would have happened otherwise. And I certainly would never say that I'm wiser than Justice Ginsburg, who was just extraordinary in the depth of, of her wisdom and her insight. But if we take the issue of, of marriage equality, or we could take the issue that came before that of criminal sodomy laws, there was change both through litigation and there was change through legal reform, through legislative reform. And there's an interaction between the two. It is very important that the judicial branch not be stacked with ideologues who are selected for those roles because they've come out of a feeder system through which people that are chosen and trained and supported and advanced because they have a particular view that the law should change in a particular direction. That's not what the founders intended. So if we have a judicial branch of people that are selected for certain types of excellence and open-mindedness and good reasoning skills, then we're more likely to have a reform process that is balanced and principled, and we have a concern today that that is less possible with many federal judges who have come out of a particular political movement with particular political views. I do think it's true that when we have reform through the legislative branch, that reform tends to have a solidity underneath it 
that's important. But sometimes that type of change can't happen until we've moved significantly down the road toward equality. In other words, sometimes the change is catalyzed and gets the first breakthroughs in the litigation arena. But when we've achieved enough social change that the justice issue is understood, then the legislative branch is more likely to be responsive. This is particularly true of something like equal rights and freedom for LGBT people because we're a tiny minority. And many of us live for long periods of time, certainly have in the past, in hiding and closeted because there were criminal laws and there was a lot of violence and employment discrimination, housing discrimination, and so forth. It's very difficult for people to come out and have a strong political movement if we're criminals and if we're subjected to such social stigma and exclusion and even violence. That's part of the constitutional doctrine that has served us well for many years. It's not clear that the current courts will continue this approach, but the equal protection analysis has asked these questions to help us understand when the courts should act when there's unequal treatment or a claim of unequal treatment. Is this group a minority? Is it a historically disfavored minority where there's widespread prejudice, where we can see this is a group of people whose identity does not relate to our ability to contribute to society? Are we disfavored in the political process? These are the questions that the courts are supposed to ask to decide whether our claim of discrimination under the Equal Protection Clause should be vindicated. This is true whether we're talking about a government law that treats us unequally, whether we're excluded from something like marriage or other fundamental rights, our rights to free speech or to organize or other basic rights. Are are we losing a fundamental right because of our membership in a particular group? In those situations, the court is supposed to do its most rigorous constitutional analysis. And we need to count on the courts to be able to do that. Sometimes if they do it properly and well for a period of time, then we become more able to achieve law reform in the legislative branch. They are related to each other. So you could really wonder what the courts are for if they won't enforce minority rights when they're denied, at least in the area of civil rights. That's exactly right. And when the courts don't do their job or they write opinions that are disingenuous, you might say. I mean, I I would go back to the example of the opinions about the COVID restrictions that said a church was being discriminated against if it's not treated the same as a you know retail establishment when they function very differently. If courts write that type of opinion that doesn't give us a principle that makes sense and that really is grounded in the facts, then the courts are not going to be respected as they need to be. And that may end up being the check and balance here. That It has been true in the past, and we need to try to make it be true in the future. If the courts aren't respected, they can't do their job. I think we can expect that Chief Justice Roberts understands that, and he has been providing guidance in recent years to try to manage the court's docket and guide the justices to decisions that are not too far ahead of where the American public is. He may have lost the ability to continue to do that given the recent confirmation of Justice Barrett. And so, you know, hard to predict the future, but 
we may be in a time period where the American public needs to speak out and object. I don't know if we can expect Congress right now to be in a good position to do that, given how evenly divided the Congress is. But the American public can speak out. We can object. I hope we don't have to start amending the Constitution. That would be a big job. So do you think that the Thomas Alito dissent is just more of the same from these two conservative justices, or does it portend a more ominous future for LGBTQ equality, especially considering the conservative supermajority in the court? Well, justices Alito and Thomas have been particularly outspoken in their disapproval of LGBTQ equality and their elevation of of religious rights over other rights. Justice Gorsuch, who was President Trump's first appointee, who has assumed the seat that should have gone to to, uh, Merrick Garland, he's the author, perhaps the unexpected author, of the Bostock decision, the one I was describing that has to do with employment discrimination. And he used a very literal, logical analysis in that case. It's an analysis that we have been advocating for quite some time, but it's a literal application of the words on the page. And it reached the conclusion that the workers in these cases were correct, that the discrimination that they claim should be understood as covered by federal law. But at the end of the opinion, he said, now, in this decision, we're not talking about religious objections. We're also not talking about certain types of of how the rules might apply when you have sex-separated programs or services. So he called out some issues that are probably yet to come. And in particular, he described the federal statute that's about religious rights, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, he called it a, quote, a super statute. Now, I don't know what a super statute is. <laughs> That's actually not a term that the Supreme Court has used in the past. So it does portend future cases in which Justice Gorsuch may decide that there are religious rights to discriminate, religious rights to not follow a civil rights law. We don't know what he would say, but that kind of statement tells us that there is yet more to be written in this area. And I will tell you that Justice Gorsuch, when he was on the Federal Court of Appeal, talked about religious rights and really ignored the equality interests that were at stake in a case about birth control access for workers, birth control insurance and birth control access for workers. So I think we have a court that has a number of members who believe that religious rights have not been vindicated have not been elevated the way they should be in past court decisions, and that are looking for the cases and the opportunities when they think the time is right to elevate those rights. Uh, There have been actually a number of decisions in recent years in which those making religious claims have prevailed. Some of them have been religious institutions. Some of them have been individuals. Some of them have been businesses owned by people with religious views. There has been an evolving pattern of religious rights being vindicated, sometimes with a convenient, in our view, a convenient view of the facts, what some might think is a selective view of the facts. So, There's reason to expect that the law will continue to move in that direction. What that portends for LGBT equality, it may be quite serious. 
there's a reason for people to be paying attention now, and that's part of why your questions are so good and so important, why this conversation is important, because some of this takes place out of, it's not really out of public view, but not everybody is keeping their eyes on the Supreme Court all the time. Not everybody devours Supreme Court decisions when, they, when they're issued, but those decisions affect our lives. And as a community, as a movement, we need to know what's happening. We need to tell each other what's happening. And we may need to join with others to do social and political organizing so that a lot more people understand the direction that the court is taking. Because if it continues in this direction, it may affect all of us and it may affect most heavily. It may cause the most harm to people who are least able to protect themselves. People who are entitled to receive services, for example, from a faith-based agency that discriminates in the way it provides the services or insists on providing the services in a way or in a setting that is really uncomfortable for people who grew up facing religion-based hostility and condemnation of, of us as LGBT people. People who may suffer most are those who have the least ability to push back against that. So it really is a responsibility that we all share to pay attention uh, and to be engaged. And if the court continues in this direction, to figure out together what we can do about it. With current trends at the Supreme Court and the erosion of the wall between church and state, how important is it for us to hang on to our idealism? We should never lose our idealism. We should never become cynical, give in to cynicism, and, and give up. We have to be fierce and committed about it. We have to know that it's tremendously important, and we need to be doing the work for the long term. It's not going to be lasting if we don't do it for the long term. But I will say this, the position of women in our society today, for example, there are employment opportunities and life opportunities today that exist because people work to insist that the Constitution be understood as guaranteeing equality for women. And this is true for other groups as well in terms of inclusion and legal rights. Sexual harassment and gender-based violence and various types of discrimination continue to be rife today. So having legal rights is essential. It's necessary it's not sufficient. We have to continue to change the social understanding of what equality means, what mutual respect means, so that we have both legal rights and the day-to-day -day reality, the lived reality of equality. There's a lot of work yet to be done, but each of the fact that you're asking these questions and that the whole uh, outcasting program exists, it, it gives me a lot of hope that we're moving in the right direction. It, it requires young people envisioning the world that you want to have and being committed to building it because it really is on your shoulders. If you want the world to look that way, if you want those ideals to be real in your life, you're going to have to do the work and make it so because some of us are going to be handing the baton to you and we're going to count on you to pick it up. That's all the time we have, so let's continue the conversation next time. Thanks, Jenny. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for the 16th part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of the series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting Team, 
including youth participants, Isha, Rose, Jada, Justin, Lil, Charlotte, Tim, Sasha, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. You can also find Outcasting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and other major podcast sites. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. Thanks, and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.